how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, faults. <laughs> False? Are you calling no, BS? Fa- faults. Oh, faults. Yeah. <laughs> I thought oh, you were false. calling BS on my, on my research here. <laughs> this is the Exploring the National Parks podcast with Dirt in My Shoes. My name is Ash, and I'm a former park ranger and the founder of Dirt in My Shoes. I think that the parks are best seen from the trail, and I'm here to make national park trip planning easy. And I'm John. I carry the kids on the trails, I tell stories, and notice all the things that Ash doesn't care about much, like rocks. Join us as we show you around America's spectacular national parks. We're sharing our favorite places, fun facts, adventures, and misadventures. And we'll even throw in a little trip planning. Let's start exploring. Today, we are talking all about Grand Teton fun facts. Yeah, yeah. And this is going to be a really good one for me because... (laughs) Although I love the Tetons so, 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 so much and ashamed of (laughs) (laughs) and ashamedly, ashamedly, what's the word? (laughs) Ashamsed. And I'm ashamed, even though I was a park ranger at Grand Teton, to admit that I actually really don't know a whole lot Mm -hmm. about like the geology and and stuff like that in this park. Right. So beyond like the arrowleaf balsam root, which is my favorite flower right. in Grand Teton. And Grand Teton is 13,775 feet tall. Oh, I know some stuff about like the, the human history and stuff that I needed to know as a park ranger in that area and stuff. But geology, uh, stuff like that, I need a lesson. Right. So take it away, John. Okay. I am so excited. <laughs> this is going to be a lot of fun. And, oh my goodness, the Tetons are fascinating because they're really not that massive of a range. Like, right. in, in terms of, like, square miles, I mean, they're only, like, 40 miles from north to south, yeah. basically, and maybe 25 miles wide, maybe, you know? Yeah. And so, they're not that big, but the way that they were created and how steep and how tall they are, it's kind of amazing. And the way that they were made is really interesting. So we're going to cover a lot of this in today's five facts. But there's also, it's kind of hard to choose because there's so much cool stuff about this park. We're going to spend a lot of time on like the mountains because they're just incredible. There's not any more picturesque mountains anywhere, really. And then the kind of the cultural aspect of the Tetons and like the westernness of them, we're going to talk a bunch about that at the end as well. And so I'm just pumped to get into this. Me too. Me okay. too. So Fun fact number one, the Tetons are one of the youngest mountain ranges in North America. Yes. Booyah. I knew that one. Brand new mountains. (laughs) They are. And it's amazing because there's some of the tallest. The Grand Teton is just, just below. Almost (laughs) 14,000. Like it kills me. I'm like, okay, but they're still growing. So he has a chance. Yes, exactly. Well, for sure, because the Tetons are basically competing in terms of height against like the Rocky Mountains, you know, in Colorado. And there's a lot of 14ers in Colorado, but those are way older mountains. And the fact that the Tetons are so young, they're still growing, means that there's a very good opportunity. You know, I may not be around for it, but that they will continue to grow. So to kind of give you an idea, the Tetons have only been uplifting for about 10 million years. And in terms of geologic time, that's nothing. You know, they call them adolescent mountains. And I think that's probably even generous. It's like calling a 10-year-old, oh, you're basically a teenager. You know, (laughs) they're not there yet. They've still got a ways to go. But compared to like the Rockies in Colorado, those are middle-aged. Those are like 50 to 80 million years old. Okay. And then like the Appalachians are like 300 million years old. Which, you know, just the ones that you've named off, it's really interesting because when you look at the Tetons and they're so sharp and craggy, and then you go to Rocky Mountain National Park. And the thing that surprised me the most about Rocky is, yes, the mountains are super tall, but they're not very craggy. Right. You know, you can tell that they're not young, newly formed mountains. Right. I guess you could say, just knowing what I knew about the Tetons, I just... 
And then the Appalachians, I mean, they're, sorry, Easterners, they're almost like hills compared to what you see in the Rockies. Right. And and it's because they're so old, mm-hmm. you know, they're, that's why they're not as craggy and mm-hmm. not as dramatic. Right. But I, yeah, that's what I love about the Tetons because you look at them and you're just like, wow. Yeah. That's like very, those are sharp mountains. Yeah, man. They're fresh. They're yeah. fresh out of the earth. But like you said, the Grand Teton is 13,775 feet, which is just below the cutoff for the fort, for a lot of people looking for all the 14ers. But the real question is, where did they come from and what makes them so special and how are they formed? And so the story of the Tetons begins more than two and a half billion years ago. Now, Ash, where were the Tetons two and a half billion years ago? You mean the area where the Tetons are? Correct. Under a shallow sea. They were definitely correct under a shallow sea. I feel like that's one of my favorite things. Everything always <laughs> starts under a shallow sea. And so that's where we were. That's where the area around the Tetons, that area of Wyoming, was under a shallow sea two and a half billion years ago. But that's not really where the story starts. It doesn't start like the shallow sea. It actually starts 18 miles deeper down in the depths of the Earth's crust. And so that's where the Teton story really begins. The way that the Tetons were kind of were created is a lot very similar to how the Himalayas were created. And so the Himalayas were created when the tectonic plate for India and the tectonic plate for Asia just crashed together. And then all of that uplift that came from that, that's why the Himalayas are so high. The Himalayan plateau came from this collision between the two tectonic plates. Well, 18 miles under the ground, 2.7 billion years ago, the same thing happened right there underneath the Tetons. Two plates collided, and that's when everything started. Now, what's really kind of interesting is these two different plates were made out of two very different kinds of stone, at least underneath the earth. And so one was made of more of like a volcanic kind of a, a rock. And the other one was made of like sedimentary rock. So all the different layers that were laid down by all these shallow seas and the oceans over a long, long period of time, those rock collided with volcanic debris. And what's really interesting about the Tetons is you can actually see in the Tetons how these two different kinds of rock mixed but didn't really blend Interesting. Yeah. And so it's kind of like you can picture it almost like Play-Doh, where you have like a red Play-Doh and a green Play-Doh and you kind of mix them together and then you like slice it and you look at it. You can still see two totally different colors, right? They don't really, I mean, maybe if you had a long time of mixing and mixing and mixing. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of our Play-Doh is brown now because our kids (laughs) keep mixing them together. Right. Well, in this situation... And in the metaphor, follow the metaphor. Uh, Sorry, um, I gotcha. I know what you mean. A nice, fresh batch of Play-Doh. That was mixed together. Yeah. Right. You can see separately the two different kinds of stone. And then imagine the Play-Doh got baked because of so much pressure and so much heat down there that it just like baked the Play-Doh together. And then it created a new kind of rock that you'll find all over the Tetons. And it's called Nice. Uh Uh-huh. It's Yes. The G-N-E-I-S-S. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's a really cool thing because in a lot of places around the Tetons, you'll see kind of almost looks like in some places like zebra stripes. Okay. And so you'll see like a darker gray or maybe even up to a black mixed with like a lighter gray or almost a white, all these zebra stripes all over the place. And I know it was weird, but the, the way that I came up with remembering the name of this kind of rock was from Finding Nemo. You know that scene when Bruce is like chasing Marlin and Dory because he Mm -hmm. like Dory gets a nosebleed and then Bruce just like goes crazy. Mm -hmm. And then the other sharks are like, intervention, he never even knew his father. (laughs) And then they're like, Marlin and Dory are running away from him. And then Bruce grabs the torpedo and throws it at Mm -hmm. the uh, at all the mines. And then all of a sudden there's this giant explosion. Run away, run away. Well, then up on top, the scene cuts to like these two pelicans sitting on the water. The only evidence that there was a giant explosion underneath the water is like one bubble like pops right next to one of the birds and the other one just looks at him in disgust. Nice. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah. and then he flies away. And so, <laughs> and so, but nice is all over the Tetons. I guess I maybe thought it was granite. Well, that's the next chapter. Okay. So that's the next chapter in the Tetons story. The next story, like 200,000 years later, molten magma from deeper inside the earth started pressing up towards this collision area. And it started to fill in the cracks where some of the gneiss had cracked and things like that. It's super deep down there and there's a whole ton of pressure. So kind of the way that I picture it happening is almost like pouring water into a cup of rice. The okay. rice is already really well tightly packed, but there's still like the water still finds a way to kind of saturate it. Okay. Right. Uh -huh. And so then the magma, it fills in all these cracks and then it melts everything together. Okay. And so then that actually forms the core of the Tetons. The magma melted the gneiss and then whatever the magma was made of. And it made like this incredibly solid and strong granite that is then, like I said, the core of the Tetons. And then it's kind of flanked and surrounded by gneiss and then like some other sedimentary rocks and things like that. But the core of the Tetons, the tallest peaks like Grand Teton, Middle Teton, and Mount Owen, those ones are made of that incredibly solid granite that is really hard and doesn't erode very fast at all. Mm -hmm. So yes, the Tetons are made of granite, but you'll find, especially as we talk a little bit more, the granite isn't the only story that's going on here. And some of the biggest geologic mysteries, I guess, we know the answer, so they're not really mysteries, but like some of the most intriguing things about the Tetons are because of some other things about like the gneiss and some other things that are going on. Now, I probably would stop there about the geology about the Tetons if it wasn't for Mount Moran. I love, love, love Mount Moran. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, describe Mount Moran if you can. Mount Moran is a giant hulk. Of a mountain. <laughs> so you have all the serrated edges of the Grand and the Middle and the South. And mm -hmm. you've got Nez Pierce and you've got Static and you've got Tiwanot and all of those that are right clumped up together. And then you go a little bit further north and you do get kind of some um, like Rock Chuck Peak and stuff. Like they're a little bit curved more, mm -hmm. but like then... You just have this Goliath of a mountain that doesn't look anything like the rest of them. Right. Like he just, he stands out. Right. Some angles where you see him, he's almost square. Yeah. Like a, like a square top or just totally rounded. Again, right. when you drive the Tetons, the mountains change shape. I just, I, oh, I love that about the Tetons <laughs> so much. But yeah. So Mount Moran does that too. It's just, it, it's just a massive hulk of a mountain. I mean, I don't know how else to, like, he looks powerful. Yeah. Are there any mysteries that you think are unexplained or you'd like to know about with Mount Moran? Well, I think it's interesting. So Mount Moran has a, a fair amount of glaciers mm -hmm. for this park. Right. The Tetons aren't known for having glaciers. Right. But Mount Moran has a few mm -hmm. where um, a lot of the other more famous peaks don't have any, really. Right. That's true. <laughs> so I think that's cool. And then also Mount Moran has a giant dike down the middle of it that's a different color. Right. And it's very pronounced. Yeah. It's so cool. So well, if you don't know what a dike is, I'll kind of explain that in just a second. But basically what it looks like, Mount Moran has a giant stripe right down the face of it. It's as noticeable as like the scar on Harry Potter. It really or, is. Yeah. If you look at it, yeah, and, and it's defined. Yeah, it's super cool. It's one of the most visible, you know, like geologic, interesting things about the Teton origin story. What is the scar or stripe? You know, where did it come from? Okay, so this is the story of the stripe, because I think a lot of people want to know after they see it, like, what is it for years and years and years? I just thought it was like a really iron rich section of the mountain mm -hmm. or something like that. But that wouldn't really necessarily make sense because it, that would have turned red, you know, over a long period of time if it was iron. But basically what happened, so this takes us back to the origin story of the Tetons for a second, but sorry, a lot closer to us than the two and a half billion. So relatively speaking, it's a really, the scar or the stripe is a new thing on Mount Moran. And it's only 
about 775 million years old. Okay. <laughs> so, so it formed about 2 billion years after the Tetons really, the main meat of the Tetons got mixed up and everything like that. And so what happened? Well, for some reason, the underneath the earth, this is still kind of underneath the earth at this point, the area was doing like yoga or something like that. For some reason, the mountain, this area got stretched north to south. And I, fig I figured the easiest way to help people picture what was actually happening here is picture yourself like holding a really old rubber band, you know, like the ones that maybe you left outside or something like that, like a really old rubber band. And you're holding two ends of it, you know, in, in your hands, one in your left, one in your right hand. And you put your left hand by your belly and you're stretching the rubber band with your right hand away from you. Okay. So you're stretching away from you. On the rubber band, usually on like an older rubber band, you'll start to see small cracks mm -hmm. start to appear, right? So you're kind of picturing this in your imagination. You're stretching the rubber band. This is the Teton range. It's stretching north to south. It's a little bit old, maybe a little bit brittle. And so what's happening is you get these cracks that develop, but not going north to south. These cracks are developing east to west. Right. So the cracks are developing horizontally. That's what happened to the Tetons. This is happening deep under the earth and you don't just have these giant caverns that open up with the Tetons. What's actually happening is as soon as those cracks open up, suddenly giant spurts of like magma fill these chambers where these cracks started to develop. The magma mixture is made of something completely different from the regular rest of the volcanic debris that formed the gneiss and things like that. It's more of a basaltic magma. And so it's made of different stuff. And that's why now, after it's had a chance to harden and uplift, we're looking at Mount Moran and we're seeing this giant stripe. It's a magma dike. Like you said, like you mentioned earlier, it's made of completely different material than the rest of Mount Moran. And it's actually so big, this dike, that if we were to melt that entire stripe, it would fill Jenny Lake three times. Hmm. That's how big it is. Interesting. And these magma dikes, they're all over the Teton. So it's not just at Mount Moran. That's just the most visible one. There's actually some other ones. There's another one on, let's see, the Grand Teton. There's another one on the Middle Teton. They're just a little bit less visible than the one on Mount Moran. And the one on Mount Moran is 150 feet wide. Nice. And so oh. it's huge. <laughs> no pun intended. What? I said nice. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Flat, 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 flat. Oh, that's really cool. That leads us to the end of fun fact number one. Okay, but we're still going to be talking about the geology just for a second because there's still a major mystery that I think is super interesting and actually helps us to answer some of the biggest questions about the formation of the Jackson Hole Valley and why the Tetons are so tall and steep. Okay. Okay. The next mystery that will lead us into fun fact number two also has to do with Mount Moran. So Mount Moran is really interesting. And so the very top of Mount Moran is 12,600 feet above sea level. The valley floor of Jackson Hole is like 6,000 feet-ish. Mm -hmm. So at the very top of Mount Moran, there's a layer of sandstone called the Flathead Sandstone Layer. Okay, so we've talked about how the heart of the Tetons, granite, just outside of that, nice. Just that kind of outside of that is sandstone. And so there's some sedimentary layers, there's limestones, there's different kinds of stones all spread throughout the Tetons. But the top of Mount Moran, there's this sandstone layer. Okay. Now let's say that you were standing at the top of Mount Moran. I wish. That would be so cool. I have friends who have climbed it. <laughs> oh, really? Uh-huh. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That would be a really cool spot. From the top of Mount Moran, you're hiking down. Like we've talked about before, these Tetons are really steep. So you're hiking down. You're hyping down, down, down. You're leaving the, the top of the mountain. You're going through the trees. You're going down off of the cliffs, down, down, down about 6,000 feet and all the way to the base of the mountain. Okay. Now, what's cool about the Tetons is that on the east side, there are literally like no foothills. And so, boom, you're there. You're literally straight down, basically off the mountain. You turn around. You can look up. You're seeing the top of Mount Moran. You turn around. You're looking out at the valley. Okay. You're at the very base of Mount Moran. As you look down at your feet, beneath your feet, 20,000 feet underneath your feet under the ground is the continuation of that same flathead sandstone layer that is on top of Mount Moran. 
how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, faults. <laughs> False? Are you calling no, BS? Faults. Oh, faults. Yeah. <laughs> I thought oh, you were false. calling BS on my, on my research here. No. Like, so it all comes down to faults. The blame lies with the fault, or the fault lies with the blame. At the base of the Teton lies a fault line. And that's the Teton Fault that was created with that giant collision two and a half billion years ago that we talked about. Now, there's still a lot of crazy stress and pressure that still remains even at this time, but the pressure is a little bit different. Instead of colliding together, the plates are actually pulling apart. Interesting. Okay, so now some fault lines, they go sideways, some go up and over each other. But since the land is pulling apart, it does something really cool. You would think that it would leave like a gaping hole, you know, or like a canyon where they're pulling apart, but that's not what happens. But what we've found is that these mountains uplift when there's an earthquake at the fault. Additionally, when the mountains go up, the valley slides down. (laughs) And so in order to picture what's happening, you need to use your hands. So like make a fist with your hands and then you put your two middle finger knuckles together. Okay. Now. Every time there's an earthquake, the valley goes down and the mountains go up. So make a little earthquake with your fists and just slide the left fist up and the and the right fist down just a little bit. And this happens over and over and over again. Extend your fingers so it can keep going. Every time there's an earthquake, it just keeps going and going and going. And so we're done with your hands now. So go ahead and put them down. All right. Um, that was great. Got a little <laughs> exercise. Exactly. But that just helps kind of illustrate what's going on with these mountains. So every time there's an earthquake, and this has been happening for 10 million years, every time this happens, the mountains and the valley separate by about 10 feet. Grow, baby, grow. Yeah, man. And so that's a ton of feet. And so over the 10 million years, this is fun fact number two, that over the 10 million years since the fault began moving, the tops of the Tetons and the bottom of the Jackson Hole Valley have moved apart Almost 30,000 feet. Nice. Put that into perspective, Mount Everest is 29,000 feet tall. Yeah. So that's how there can be the sandstone on the top of the mountains and so far down in the valley. Exactly. Because they've separated. This has been going on for so long, you know? And so that sandstone, it's such an interesting clue as to how things were made here at the Tetons. That slipping fault just continuing to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, I mean, that's some serious earthworks going on. Yeah. 30, almost 30,000 feet of separation. And I'm just calling it, you heard it here first, folks. Give it another 10 million years. And I think the Grand Teton will give Mount Everest a run for its money. Yeah. Booyah. Can't (laughs) wait to see that day. So I think that'll be super cool. But that still doesn't answer all the questions. And that brings us to fun fact number three, because there are still some really interesting questions. We don't know why there aren't really any foothills and why there, the valley isn't like so deep and filled with like the deepest lake in the world. Right? Right. So this brings us to fun fact number three, and it is all about glaciers. Okay. I'm really excited about this. Okay. Yes. So glaciers tell us the rest of the story. They tell the story about the amazing shape of the Tetons in the valley below. Now, I think the way that the Teton range built up that we've talked about kind of in fun fact number one and two is fascinating. But truthfully, they only tell the story of how the stone was made. You know, they don't really illustrate, in my opinion, like the true heart of the stone. You know, I think the real power of the Tetons is the way that it just kind of blows you away. How they were sculpted. Exactly. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, that's what moves you. So, so far we've talked about how the block of stone made its way to Michelangelo's door. You know, now what moves us is, is seeing what he sculpted out of that stone. You know, the artist's hands in this regard to the Tetons are the glaciers. Those are the true artists of the Tetons. I'm so excited. I love glaciers. I love glaciers so much. I know. I think you would agree that your favorite feature of the Tetons is how craggy they are. Absolutely. It's just something to stand there, no matter where you are in the park, to stand there and to just see, like, I notice something new every time. Mm -hmm. 
And when you're driving, like say you're driving the Outer Park Road and you're going up and you can see the whole range in front of you. It's amazing because you can see, I mean, what I've always loved, you can look back the canyons, like through the canyons and see all the way to the back. Right. It's not like there's all these twists and turns that are hiding stuff. And so, for example, you look like you look at Death Canyon and it's just got the big cliffs marking the entrance. Mm -hmm. And then it has the shelf back behind this, this flat area. Um, and then you move up to like Avalanche Canyon and it's it's pretty open wide. But then you can see this massive wall at the back of Avalanche Canyon. Right. Notice the wall, you guys. And it's so cool. Like I will just sit in the car. I always make John drive when we're in the Tetons. <laughs> I'll just sit in the car and I have my window down and I'm just like staring at those mountains because there's so many cool things to notice. But I love the Avalanche Wall. I've hiked up there, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's an unmarked trail and it's so cool. But so there's a wall and then you've got like Cascade Canyon that you can see again, like pretty open wide and you can see. And on one side, it, you've got craggy peaks and on the other, they're more rounded. And then you can see the big U-shaped canyons. And so it's just like when you're there, look at what you're seeing and picture how that possibly could have been made. Right. Oh, yeah. The artistry that kind of goes into the Tetons seems incredible. It seems like there was some form of plan involved. Yeah, like like they're like, okay, for this canyon, we're going to make it really steep. And for this canyon, we're going to put a giant Great Wall of China in the back. <laughs> for this canyon, <laughs> we want it to be U-shaped. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's how it feels because you can see back into all of those canyons as you drive and it's just like they're none two are alike. Yeah, it's so cool. And over the 10 million years that these mountains have been uplifting, they have seen some massive changes. So in getting into how they were kind of sculpted for, you know, from being at the bottom of the shallow sea to where they are now, mountain, these mountains have seen it all. In fact, during the Pleistocene, which started about 2 million years ago, there have been several warming and cooling periods. But there were times when the area from like Yellowstone all the way past Jackson was the whole place was covered in glaciers up to like 3,500 feet thick. Mm, cool. And so, yeah, so th these this whole area was covered by a whole glacial snow cap. But these glaciers, they moved tons of sediment from higher elevations to lower elevations. And this action of moving the sediments, this is why Jackson Hole Valley is so flat and not like a giant lake. Because the glaciers filled the depression of the falling valley as the mountains went up these glaciers filled that depression with sediments and glacial fill and moraine and stuff like that instead of just water exactly interesting and so as the mountains got carved out you know those glaciers that were in the mountains they deposited all of sediments and all of the rocks and boulders and the moraine all of that got deposited right there in the valley and then over time it's just kind of it's flattened out. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it's, it's it's so flat. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And so, but, but we talked about before, to see the real heart of the stone, you really have to take the part. I don't know why I call it, keep calling it the heart of the stone. <laughs> I want to romanticize <laughs> these mountains. A, yeah, is that from a movie? I don't know. Heart of the stone. The heart of the stone. Well, in Timpanogos Cave, there's a, there's a thing called the heart of the mountain, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. And so I think that's probably why it's stuck in my head. But to really get to the heart of the mountains and to see like the most beautiful sculptures, I think you have to get into the canyons of Grand Teton. And that's where you'll see the glacier's very finest work. Yeah. You know, the deep U-shaped canyons that reveal gorgeous granite cliffs and crags, glacial carved lakes. And I think, I, I personally, I think that the glaciers even tried to frame the Grand Teton as much as possible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're like, we got to bring as much attention to this peak as possible. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no other reason why the North Fork of Cascade Canyon would point literally directly at the Grand Teton. It is phenomenal. Yeah, showcasing like the most intense collection of crags on display anywhere. It's amazing. What's your favorite canyon? Cascade Canyon. Really? I love Cascade that Canyon. That fork or just the main center area? So Cascade Canyon, you go up Cascade Canyon, just like the regular 
I don't know, Cascade Canyon. And then it forks to the north and it forks to the south once you get back in there. Mm -hmm. And so you have the main thoroughfare, basically, and then you have North Cascade and South Cascade. So what's Mm -hmm. your favorite? I can't choose because the South Fork wraps around the Grand and you can see it really well from like the the backcountry camping area. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you're in your face. Yeah, it's right there. But then when you go up the North Fork, you're sitting at Lake Solitude. You're looking at the Grand basically sideways, the side profile, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's just so amazing. It's like the way that it it looks almost like it's just like shooting out of the earth, Mm -hmm. you know, like in, in like Marvel or superhero movies when like the Hulk smashes the ground. You know, and then you have like a giant stalagmite or something that just like shoots up like a spike out of the ground. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things. That's what the Grand Teton looks like. One of those giant Hulk spikes that just like popped out of the earth to (laughs) destroy, I don't know, one of the bad guys or something like that. You know, that's what it looks like to me. And so Cascade Canyon just blows my mind every time I'm in it. And like I said, that's I think that's the finest work that the glaciers have ever done. In terms of like sculpting something beautiful out of mountain. Hike back into the North Fork of Cascade Canyon and look behind you uh-huh. <laughs> uh, as you're hiking and you'll see just that perfect U-shaped canyon. Yeah, it's awesome. Millions of years, glaciers have been chipping away at these granite blocks of stone and gneiss and other sedimentary rocks. Never finished, never fully satisfied. You know, they're just working and working and working. And even up till today, this is fun fact number three, there are up to 11 active glaciers within Grand Teton National Park. Which you really wouldn't guess. Right. Because especially as the summer goes on, I mean, those mountains lose their snow. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like there would be glaciers, especially because down in the valley, it does get pretty hot. (laughs) Right. Your summer temps, you know, July and August are sometimes up in the 90s. Yeah, it can so, hot. Yeah, so it is surprising. I that remember when glaciers. we were doing the Teton Crest Trail, one time we got up to the top of the Death Valley shelf. We got some water from this river or like this little creek at night. And then when we woke up, the creek was dry. Yeah, that was pretty scary because that was our water source. But yeah, it was. It was flowing when we got to our campsite that night, but the next morning it was gone. Right. There are 11 active glaciers, but they're generally in more shady places. There are several on Mount Moran. Yeah, if you look at Mount Moran, you guys are just going to love Mount Moran by the end of this episode. (laughs) Grand Teton's going to get jealous. Yeah, sorry, Grand Teton. When you look at Mount Moran, if You can see it's called the Skillet Glacier. It looks like a skillet. It is getting smaller. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've noticed even in my short lifespan uh, that it's been changing. But yeah, it's just right on the face of of Mount Moran. You don't have to hike or anything. You can see it just right from the road. Yep. There are some other ones that you can see right from the road, too. And so you can see, like you said, you can see Skillet Glacier on Mount Moran. There's also another one on Mount Moran called the Falling Ice Glacier that you can see from the Culture Bay area, but there's also one on, there's Teton Glacier that you can see from the Teton Park Road. There's a turnout for it. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, a really pretty turnout, by the way, too. I love that turnout. It it is so good. And so there's a few, there's a few more that are visible kind of as you're driving the park roads, especially as you're in the park later in the summer, whatever remains is probably one of those glaciers. You know, it's crazy to me. I just thought about this because when we did our glacier episode and how we're talking about, well, it's actually really hard to see a glacier in glacier. Yeah. And so I think, you know, people go to glacier like, okay, I got to see the glaciers before they're gone and stuff. But it's like, or you could go to Grand Teton and and see one from the road really easily. Yeah. Or Mount Rainier (laughs) for that matter. But I just think, I think a lot of times we just associate glaciers with glacier. Right. But Grand Teton, you can go and you can see glaciers. Yeah, really easily. Yeah. Really easily. And it's it's so cool. And so that kind of brings us to the end of like how the mountains were formed and sculpted. You know, fun facts one through three, you know, these are these are young mountains, but so tall. And, you know, there's just the way that these are made. Can you imagine being around when one of those earthquakes happened? I mean, when the earth literally shifts by 10 feet. 
Yeah. That would blow you away. I think they estimate that the earthquakes would be around like a seven to an eight. Yeah. And so, and, and then just like the earth, just dro- if you're in the valley, the earth dropping from underneath you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, oh, now we're 10 feet lower. <laughs> oh my gosh. That would be crazy. That wouldn't be what I was thinking. I'd be screaming my head off yeah. probably, but. Yeah, that would be that's nuts. so cool. Be like when you're in an elevator, or like be like when you're in the uh, at Disneyland in the Tower of Terror. Yeah, or your something stomach like that. stays up and your body goes down. <laughs> <laughs> that would be crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So now we're gonna move on just a little bit. Now, fun facts number four and five kind of have to deal a little bit more with like the human history of things. Fun fact number four is that there's 61 species of mammals that live beneath the towering peaks of the Tetons. So there's 61 different kinds of mammals that live here. But there's really only one that affected the history of the Tetons the most. Which one do you think it would probably Uh, be? I'm guessing buffalo. Nope. No? Oh, I thought for sure you'd you'd plan one around buffalo. (laughs) No, I love the buffalo. Okay, let me think about this. Okay, Uh, isn't an obvious one? I don't think so. Well, it's maybe. not one I would think of. A you marmot? Sh- you should know. The, pi- did you say the marmot? I said a marmot. Nope, not the marmot. A pike. But you're, you're kind of in this right size of animal around the marmot. Beaver? The beaver. Oh, because of the trappers. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so bef- before we move on to a little bit more about that, yeah, there's, there's tons of these little creatures all throughout the Tetons. There's tons of mammals. Great big ones, great small ones, but probably the one that made the most impact on the history of the Tetons would be the beaver. Because they brought the people that basically named the park. Yeah. (laughs) We can't gloss over this. (laughs) Exactly. It's an important fun fact. We'll we'll get to that in just a minute. (laughs) But in Grand Teton, you can see things like the great ungulates. You know, you can see moose, elk, deer, bison, pronghorn, which, by the way, pronghorn, don't underestimate those. Those are the fastest creature in North America. Yeah. So. Those are super cool. I have yet to see one running full speed. I would love to, though. Oh, man. Once, I don't remember what I was doing, but I was in Grand Teton. I don't was know I where you were. You? Yeah. But Maybe I was with you. Was it running? <laughs> we saw one literally booking it. I oh, don't really? know if a car spooked it or something, but it was kind of running along parallel to the highway. And so there are lots of different creatures that different creatures will handle fences different ways. Like uh, moose and probably deer, they jump over fences. And buffalo will just ram through them, you know, but pronghorn go under fences. Oh, really? And so what this one was doing, it was running as fast as it possibly could. It was booking and probably going as fast, if not faster than the car. And it was booking it along the fence, going parallel with us. And all of a sudden it just like dropped to the ground and like slid under the fence and was gone. Where the heck was I? (laughs) I don't remember this at all. I don't know, but it was so cool. It was it was awesome. It was like a sweet army maneuver, you know? It was really That's cool. That's so cool. Yeah, but it was awesome. But So you can see all those cool creatures. You can see also things like grizzly bears, black bears. There are wolves in the northern part of the park. Mountain lions are here too. As you travel up into the mountains, you'll see things like the yellow-bellied marmot. You'll also hear, probably not see, the pika, mm-hmm. which are really cool. Um and so there are a lot of really cool mammals and other creatures that you can see in Grand Teton, but the beaver is the one that probably made the biggest impact because fashion. Yeah, you love fashion. <laughs> By the way, if you want to see a beaver in Grand Teton, go down to Schwabacher's Landing. Right. Because there are beaver dams down in there if you hike along the river there. Yep. So. Exactly. Just a side note, you know, since it was such an important animal to the area. Yep. And we covered fashion, how important fashion is. And I don't get fashion, but uh, how important fashion is, like when we did the Everglades episode, we talked Mm -hmm. about fashion quite a bit because the feathers were a really important or a really desired feature that people wanted in their hats and in some of their clothing. And so the Everglades was really affected by fashion because people wanted feathers. Well, same thing, but not feathers. People wanted beaver hats. The Abraham Lincoln flat top hat, you know? That was a huge deal out west. I mean, it brought so many different fur trappers. Yeah. For beaver. Absolutely. Yeah, beaver beaver pelts. Yes, exactly. And what's really cool 
is I did not realize we're from Utah and a lot of people call Salt Lake, the Salt Lake area, kind of like the the crossroads of the West, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, before Salt Lake was the crossroads of the West, the Teton area was the original crossroads of the West because the main highways, the main thoroughfares for people to travel were the rivers. Mm-hmm. And the Tetons are within, like they're super central. They're like 100 miles away from the headwaters of multiple major river systems. And so if the mountain men, you know, they wanted to come and trap, you know, there were four major centers of like fur trading and exploitation, basically where they would hunt or trap for these creatures. There was the Northwest, you know, on the Columbia River. There was some in the Southwest near Santa Fe, you know, the the upper Missouri River area. And finally the South Pass, which was in Wyoming. But all of these the central area for a lot of these had the headwaters of these was in the Jackson Hole area. And so mountain men, you know, crossed paths with each other all the time going through the Teton area on the way to the Green River, the Snake River, the Yellowstone River, you know, the three forks of the Missouri, you know, the Wind Rivers, they're only a hundred they're within a hundred miles as well. And so you had all of these trappers, they were huge in terms of like mapping of the area, in terms of exploring the area meeting the Native Americans and pulling some of the resources out, which was mainly the beavers. And so what you were alluding to earlier. Is all the dirty Frenchmen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A lot of the uh, a lot of these trappers were, you know, French or from d- different types of places all around Europe. And so they came here to get rich, you know, on the beaver pelts. And, you know, when you're out alone in the wilderness, you know, with just a bunch of dirty old dudes, sometimes you miss the comforts of home. And (laughs) oh my gosh. And they happened to name the Tetons the, I don't know, how do you say three in in French, Ash? Trois. Trois. The Trois Tetons, basically. Three. The three breasts, basically. And so, and so these dirty old Frenchmen trapping beavers and things like that, you know, that's, they pretty much named the area. And this was the, the Tetons were easily the most recognizable landmark in the area. Yeah. Easily. And so that's, that's what they named them. That's and what stuck. The name has basically has stuck until today. It's made men all over the planet snicker as they come into this part of Wyoming. And their wives look at them in disgust. <laughs> Trust me. I know. I worked at the entrance station at Grand Teton. <laughs> I know the comments and the laughs that people have yep. over that name. I've heard it all. Oh, my gosh. So in the spirit of French trappers, I made a joke. And I'd like to tell it to you, Ash. Great. Okay. <laughs> Cover your kids' ears. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this will be these this will be PG-ish. What makes the Grand Tetons so grand? I don't know. <laughs> they seem to defy gravity as they get older. <laughs> Nobody's going to Wyoming to see droopy Tetons. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. We will now divest from this area of conversation it had to be said that's a big part it's the name of the part it is it is it had to be said you guys so have a good laugh about it and you know don't let your imagination run wild (laughs) and don't look down on me too much now we're gonna move on a little bit we talked so fun fact number four was all about the mammals and the main mammal that really brought most of the attention to the area which was the beaver Fan fact number five is always the human history. And the human history in Grand Teton is fascinating. It's got so many amazing things. We're going to traverse like the Native Americans. We've talked about, you know, some of the mountain men. There's climbers, there's homesteaders and ranchers. There's then the transition to dude ranches and, you know, and then the conservation movement. There was so much that happened here in the Tetons. And there's so many cool things to discuss. But I've said this before. I think I talked about it with Glacier. You know, the idea that the Tetons, the way that we see them now, where they were peopleless, you know, and it's just this natural wilderness where man never existed was never really a thing. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And so I've talked about that before. And native peoples have been here for 11,000 years. You know, the paleo Indians had been here. But the fun fact that goes along with number five and all of the the human history, there's one thing that really determined a lot of the first few waves of the more recent human history. And fun fact number five is that there are only about 60 continuous frost-free days a year in Jackson Hole. I just read that like earlier today. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> and I was like, 60? <laughs> really? Yeah. And so Because it's not like, I mean, it is a high elevation. And when we say Jackson Hole, so the town is Jackson. Right. But Jackson Hole is an old cowboy way of saying the Jackson Valley. I think it was it's mainly the, the trappers that they called it the hole. Yeah. You know, and so when when someone says, well, now it people have gotten it interchangeable, but when they say Jackson Hole, it should be referring to the entire valley and area. Right. Exactly. And so the the fact that there's only 60 continuous days of frost free day of frost free mornings and evenings basically means that the growing season here is so, so short. short. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It does make it incredibly interesting and beautiful for wildflowers because the growing season is so short. The like basic almost every couple of weeks, the dominant flower that's, you know, flowering is different. different yeah. <laughs> and there's so many flowers yeah, there too. Because things have to move so fast. Yeah. These plants are really cooking, you know, in terms of what they have to do in such a short period of time. But the fact that the growing season is so short really affected how humans interacted with the area. And so when we first start with the Native Americans, the Paleo-Indians and more recent Native American tribes that lived here, it's so cold here. They really only spent time here during the warm months. When the big mammals were out, they would follow them into the area. They would hunt and gather, get as much resources out of the area as they could, and then they would leave when the animals did. Because even the animals generally don't stay in the valley because it's so cold. And the plants here... At least in the valley, the main plant is that you'll see the sagebrush. And the animal that mostly eats that is the pronghorn. A lot of the other ones require more grasses and things like that. But when the big game animals left, the Native Americans left too. Because it was too cold to continue to stay and to do subsistence farming and things like that. It just didn't work for them. I can't imagine because we've been there when it's been... I mean, I've spent a good amount of time there in the winter. Right. But I mean, this last time we went, the diesel in our truck totally froze <laughs> and we were stuck. Oh, my gosh. Um, it, I it got gets under so the cold. truck and I had to like splash the fuel line with water, hot water for like an hour just to, de- to thaw everything out. Yeah. But so I mean, I've, I've been there when it's been negative 20. Yeah. And that's not abnormal at all. <laughs> no. So, yeah, that I Winters in that area are very hard. Yeah, exactly. And so the native peoples that were here and a lot of the the people that came to this area that enjoyed it, it's very seasonal. Even in ancient times, it was always seasonal. But then we kind of get into an area, we're going to skip and come back a little bit. But a lot of like the homesteading and the ranching that happened in the valley when you know, people came to settle the area after the Homestead Act and things like that. They struggled Mm -hmm. big time. A lot of the Mormon row was settled by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The the Mormons, you know, Brigham Young sent people up there and they created what they could out of what was there, but they struggled too. They did a good job. But I mean, a lot of the history of the ranchers and homesteaders is, man, this is hard. Man, these mountains are pretty. Ooh, people want to come and see these. Let's do tourism. Yeah. <laughs> so, Forget about growing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's just bring other people in. Yeah, exactly. And so the human history is really interesting. There's a long, well, it's really not that long, actually. It's probably about 75 to 100 years worth of people from the time that the area was really going from trapping and, and furs to homesteading, ranching, to tourism it happened pretty quick because people realized it's way harder to try to grow things here it's not an agricultural area at all no it's not like just down the road the star valley area 
or right. you know, it's not like the Salt Lake Valley. There are tons of other places in the Rocky Mountains where the growing seasons are longer and it's easier to make a living. Right. Jackson Hole is not that place, which is why if you watch the show, which is on, I think it's on HBO Max, a zombie show, I think The Last of Us, spoilers, Jackson Hole is like one of the last refuges of man, basically. There, there's a colony of people that live in Jackson Hole, and I'm thinking to myself, sure, it's probably hard for fungus to grow in Jackson Hole, which is like the zombie creator. But really, I think I would choose a different place if I was going to make a colony of subsistence living. I would choose somewhere other than Jackson Hole because stuff doesn't really grow there. It's so hard to do it. So what do people do? People adapt and they make a great living because people want to see these mountains. But do you know who the first European settler is that probably saw the Tetons? Uh, John Coulter? John Coulter. At least we think. We don't have actual definitive proof, but we... Oh, yeah. I got that right. Yeah, that was a good... And you're always trying to trick me, <laughs> and I, I got it. You did. You killed it. So, the story of John Coulter is just incredible. And basically, in a nutshell, what happened is he was with Lewis and Clark in the Corps of Discovery. They left St. Louis. They went all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And they came all the way back and they told the, everybody about their awesome journey and about they were the first people to traverse all the way across the United States. John Coulter made it all the way to the Pacific Ocean. He was on his way back to St. Louis. They had basically gone like 80, 90 percent of the way there. And he's like, I don't know if I'm ready to be done yet. <laughs> <laughs> so he sees a couple of trappers coming up the Missouri River and they're talking to him. They're swapping stories. And he's like. Uh, Lewis and Clark, how about you guys keep going? I'm just going to take off with these guys. And he headed back into the wilderness after being on the road, you know, trying to bushwhack through the American West for almost two years. He heads back out into the wilderness. He ends up not even staying with these guys because I, for some reason they end up splitting up. He goes and exploring more of this place by himself. And we assume that he was the first person to go through the Teton area. There has been a few things that people have found that kind of like he wrote his name on or something like that. We don't know if any of those are real, but I think the greatest definitive reason why I believe that he actually went through the area is because after he was done with all of his journeying, he went back to the East. He met with Clark, who was kind of compiling all of his notes and all of his maps and everything. And the core of discovery never went further south. They never even got into Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And, but on his maps that he had drawn, and as a result of his conversation with, with John Coulter, there is a lake that looks like Jackson Lake. Interesting. And so that's why, to me, it proves he was the first person into the area. But he was the first of many, many trappers and explorers that came through the area, like we talked about with all the rivers and everything like that. I mean, lots of people have wanted to come. Once they see this area, they're just taken with it. And that's why a lot of the homesteaders and their ranchers, once they realize people want to come and see this place, they change their entire outfit from farming to tourist-based business. Mm -hmm. And so they end up turning all their ranches into dude ranches and allowing people from the east and all over the place to come and enjoy and experience the grandeur of the Tetons. Yeah, I mean, there's still dude ranches. Uh, the Triangle X is still running. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a abandoned dude ranch in Grand Teton that uh, a lot of people don't know about that yep, you can the visit. the BC dude ranch. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. You know, going from the dude ranch mentality and stuff like that, I mean, the Rockefellers owned a lot of land in Jackson Hole. Yeah. And so that's when like the conservation stuff started is a lot of the land actually was donated by the Rockefeller family to be protected as well. What's super interesting is Stephen Mather and Albright were like the main original people for the National Park Service that really turned it into something awesome. And they came out to Yellowstone to see how everything was going, how it was being run. And just on a whim, they said, hey, let's go south and let's go check out those mountains down there. Let's go take a look at it. They got down there completely blown away. Yeah. Albright especially was just like, oh my gosh, this place is so cool. Because at that time, 
there weren't that many homesteaders, weren't very many ranches and things like that. This was like the really, really early 1900s. And he gets down in there and he's like, oh my gosh, this, this is so cool. We have to protect this place. His original thought is in order to protect this place, we have to expand Yellowstone. And so he's like, we, the animals, they need a place to come. We got to protect this place. Let's just expand Yellowstone. Well, he ran into a lot of problems with that. And basically what ended up happening is as they solidified the National Park Service and things like that, and kind of the conservation movement started to grow, Stephen Mather, who was a pretty wealthy guy and he had lots of wealthy friends, Stephen Mather liked to bring a lot of his wealthy friends to come to these natural places so that they would then spend some of their money trying to protect them. Well, John D. Rockefeller came to Yellowstone and Stephen Mather told him, listen, don't tell him about the Tetons. We don't, you know, we just, let's, let's just let him have, enjoy his vacation. Well, Albright took him on a tour of the Tetons and the whole time he was on the tour, he's like, we got to protect this place. We got to get this, you know, he's just telling his, his story and all of his concerns to John D. Rockefeller and Rockefeller just fell in love with the place too. Mm -hmm. And so when he, he got back to New York years before, he was actually the guy that donated all the land for Acadia, Acadia National yes. Park. And so in, in his mind, he's thinking, okay, I got this awesome opportunity. Maybe I could do the same thing in Grand Teton. So what he does is he creates this organization called the Snake River Land Company. And he hires a couple of guys to be the CEO and the president or whatever. And then they get a local guy to be the agent. And that way it doesn't look like it's somebody back east, you know, controlling everything and trying to buy up all the land. They buy up a ton of property. And people, and are, even getting, a lot, people are getting mad. Yeah. Well, even <laughs> eventually people like find out that it's him and they get so upset and they're like, oh my gosh, all these Easterners, you know, buying up all our property, all our land, they're going to change everything. Well, what ended up working out for Rockefeller and the Teton National Park now is that a lot of the people that were originally super against what he was doing ended up selling to them because of drought, you know, problems mm -hmm. with their cattle, uh, cattle prices going up and down. And so they ended up in a bad spot. Or eventually at the end of the, the 20s, you know, you had the Great Depression started. And so a lot of people ended up selling to John D. Rockefeller. He mm -hmm. basically bailed them out of a bad situation and at the same time got all this land that he could then donate or in his mind could donate to the National Park Service. And so it was super cool, but still it took decades, decades for people in Congress or in Washington, D.C. to finally accept the gift of the Tetons of all the land that he had bought. And so they did make Grand Teton National Park a park, but it was only like the mountains across the lakes and everything like that. Jackson Lake wasn't even included in it. And eventually it was like almost the, I think it was in the forties. John D. Rockefeller was like, listen, if you guys don't accept this land, I bought this land for you. If you don't <laughs> take this, I am going to just sell it to the highest bidder. Mm -hmm. And he told that to Franklin D. Roosevelt and Roosevelt was like, okay, okay. fine. And he used the Antiquities <laughs> Act and he made it a national monument. Oh my gosh. And so then he kind of, he fought Rockefeller forced their hand. And now we have an amazing national park. I mean, the, a lot of the people that responsible for the Wilderness Act of 1964, they had meetings in the Tetons, you know, to, to discuss things that came up with the idea for like wilderness preservation and management by the federal government, things like that. And so, I mean, the conservation ethic around the Tetons has been strong for a very long time. People love it. They love visiting it. They want to protect it. Even a lot of the ranchers and homesteaders and dude ranchers wanted to protect it from getting too developed. Mm -hmm. And so they, a lot of them, that's why they sold to Rockefeller because they saw a beautiful valley getting filled up with subdivisions and things like that. And so they wanted to protect it. And so that's one of the coolest stories of the Tetons in my mind. You know, we go from people, people have always just visited the Tetons. Man has always been a visitor here because it's such a harsh environment. And even today, people continue to visit because it just blows you away. It's like the most romantic Western type of location ever. Well, it gets it gets in your soul. 
mm-hmm. mean, and that's exactly, I always say that's my favorite national park. It's because that's what it did to me. Right. And so I love hearing the stories of other people who have also gone and there's just something about it that just like attaches itself to you. Right. So even if you're just a visitor, it's like, I, w- I will never forget the way that I feel when I'm there. And so I love that that's the entire conservation story of the Tetons as well is just like, you go and you never forget. Right. Oh, it's so cool. So those are the fun five facts for Grand Teton National Park. You know, we talked about the creation of the mountains, how they were sculpted, the human history. It just blows me away. Fun facts five, four and five. You know, I love this place. It's so cool. And when you get a chance, you should definitely, definitely visit. Even if it's just for a minute on your trip from Yellowstone, you know, it's cool. Thanks for exploring the national parks with us. Please share, like, and subscribe. And if you need any help planning your own trip, click on over to dirtinmyshoes.com. See you next week. Same time, same place. And don't forget to get some dirt in your shoes. Dirt in my shoes.